Well, go ahead and be turning to our master text this morning in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And we are continuing on with um, the series that we began several weeks ago. You know, even though it is Mother's Day today, I'm not going to be doing a traditional Mother's Day service or Mother's Day teaching per se. Um, But we've been on this series called The Untouchables, The Untouchables, for the last several weeks. And uh, we're going to continue that today. And again, the premise of this series is dealing with things that most churches don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, delicate subjects, sensitive subjects that are often uncomfortable for pastors to talk about and for people in church to hear on Sunday morning. And we're going to continue that on today by talking about faith and politics, which is something that a lot of people don't think should mix, but in fact, they do. So let's read our master text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And if you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of the Word of God. We honor the Word of God around here. So the first three verses says this. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Keep reading, verse 4, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, I do want to say before I jump into this that all of the teachings in this series so far, The Untouchables, has been longer than normal. Not that I teach short anyway. I don't, but, uh, but uh, even these teachings have gone longer than normal. So I, I want to thank you for your patience as we've dealt with these difficult subjects. And I don't know how long this teaching is going to go today. It might go longer as well. But based upon what I've seen from you the last few weeks, I know you can take it. Okay. So again, thanks for your, your patience. Well, um, on the screen there, you see I have a little cartoon of a young lady saying, like, oh my gosh, never talk about religion or politics. So is it taboo for Christians to talk about politics? And, you know, it's become a common axiom now that if you want to be seen as a person of good social graces, to never talk about religion or politics in mixed company, because those two subjects are things that can cause arguments with some people. And while that's true, people do argue over these two things. Isn't it interesting that we're being conditioned to refrain from talking about perhaps the two Uh, most important things for the well-being of our world. Things that can literally change the destiny of nations and of individuals. See, people are going into eternity every day, folks, and most Christians say nothing. Our nation is being plunged headlong into socialism right now, into social chaos, and we're told to be quiet. What a convenient ideology for people who are perpetrating evil in our world. Oh, be quiet. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. What a convenient ideology for those people who are perpetrating evil in our world. See, the founding fathers certainly didn't think that way, folks. They were willing to give their lives, and many of them did, for the sake of a better world. As a matter of fact, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who you see on the screen there, for example, was one of the principal framers of the Constitution, and his approach to life was this, God, country, and family, in that order. God, country, and family. Why that order? Why not God, family, and country? Well, his reasoning was that if the family ever loses control of our government, then the family would then severely suffer. And we're seeing that to a certain degree in our culture today. And Dr. Benjamin Rush wasn't the only signer of the Declaration of Independence who felt that way. As a matter of fact, history shows that at least half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were educated as ministers. And some were even still active 
in ministry during the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, revisionists like PolitiFact and other uh, sites like that, even a lot, a lot of our um, school books that are being used in public schools are being revised now to take some of those facts out. But those things are still available out there for anyone who chooses to go looking for them. The Christians of early America then felt that it was a moral obligation to be involved in politics. A moral obligation to be involved in politics. And this is important also because evil people, folks, definitely use politics to their advantage. Did you notice that? And that's why in our master text it says to pray for our leaders and all those in authority so that we can do what? Live peaceful lives. We live peaceful lives when our leaders and our government authorities are governing in a godly and a righteous way. But when they don't, there's chaos. There's social chaos like what we see happening now. Social upheaval. So if God didn't want us to be involved in politics... He wouldn't have instructed us to do that, to pray for our leaders. Do you agree with that? Now, Martha Gellhorn was a famous novelist and journalist of the 20th century. and She was also Ernest Hemingway's second wife, by the way. And she said this on this matter. People often say with pride, I'm not interested in politics. Well, they might as well say, I'm not interested in my standard of living. My health, my job, my rights, my freedoms, my future, or any future. If we mean to keep any control over our world and our lives, we must be interested in politics. So whether you like it or not, this is something that we really need to begin paying more attention to. Uh, several centuries before Martha Gellhorn, Plato, the famous uh, Greek philosopher said it this way, if you do not take an interest in the affairs of your government, then you are doomed to live under the rule of fools. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in our culture today as well, don't you? Now, certain religious groups, like the Jehovah's Witnesses comes to mind, believe that people of faith should not be involved in politics and shouldn't even vote. In particular, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that it's a sin to vote. You should never vote or be involved or be interested in politics at all. And there's at least a million Jehovah's Witnesses in this nation, maybe more, who do not get involved in the political process. And their reasoning is that Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. Well, yes, Jesus did say that, uh, but that's not what they think it means. Now, all that means is that Jesus did not come to be set up as an earthly king and to be set up on an earthly throne. That's all he meant by that. Jesus came, in fact, to bring God's kingdom to earth. His kingdom was not of this world, he was saying. He had come to bring God's kingdom to earth. It was also Jesus who taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come onto the earth just as it is in heaven. Do you remember that? That God's kingdom would come and his will would be done just as it is in heaven. So declining to be involved in politics uh, because of that one statement by Jesus taken completely out of context is very tragic because it denies the desire of God to bring his heavenly kingdom onto the earth through you and me. That's what he wants to happen. Boy, that's a point right there I could literally teach a series on, and perhaps I will at some point. But God wants his kingdom to come and his will to be done, just as it is in heaven, through the prayers and through the actions of people like you and me. That's how it happens. I'm just going to give one really quick example of that. You know, slavery, as an example, was a horrible mark on our nation, and it was through the prayers of many of God's people and the actions of many of God's people over a long period of time that brought His kingdom to come and His perfect will being done regarding slavery as it is in heaven and did away with that thing. 
That's what we're talking about here. To take some of these social issues, pray, act, and then God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven regarding that thing that you're targeting and getting involved in. Does that make sense? Furthermore, a different point uh, or, or a different way to look at that point about does God want us to be involved in politics is that let's consider that there were many righteous people in the Bible who were not only involved in politics, but whose careers were in politics. So how anyone can say that God doesn't want us to be involved in politics is beyond me because there are dozens of examples in the Bible of men and women in some cases who were involved in the political process of their day and who were righteous people who God set up in those positions. In fact, help me out this morning. Can you think of anybody off the top of your head who was a righteous person whose the stamp of God's approval was on them and they were involved in politics? Anyone at all? David's a perfect example, yes. Who? Joseph, Joseph another perfect example. Who else? How about pretty much all of the righteous kings in Israel, which is about one-third of them, okay? Now, two-thirds were evil, granted, but, but listen, every time a good king got inserted into that position, to that throne in Israel, guess what? There was positive social change, because an evil king would get in there and they would get steeped in paganism. They would get steeped in human sacrifice even and, and worship of the sun god and Baal and, and Molech and all that. And just stark evil when an evil person was set up in a position of authority in the kingship. But a righteous king would come in and get set up and he would knock down all the, uh, all the high places where they worshipped these pagan gods and social reform in a good way. They would bring back godliness to the nation whenever a good king got inserted in there. And that pleased God. God didn't say, oh no, I don't want you to be involved in politics. Don't even, don't even bother with the social reform stuff. No, God wanted that. He used people in authority to do that, folks. Another person that I thought of that uh, God used in politics, and I talked about Esther earlier in our ministry time, but Esther is a perfect example of someone that God raised up specifically for that very purpose. For her to have a positive influence in that time and place to bring about social reform. God raised her up specifically for that purpose to have an influence on the political climate of that culture at that time. Amen. So uh, these people use their, their influence and their political positions to make the world a better place because their faith guided and influenced public policy. See, folks, listen, it's a demonic deception to believe that people of faith should not be involved in politics. That's a deception. This is a very wrong and satanic strategy designed to get people of faith out of the way who would otherwise use their faith to influence public policy and to make the world a better place. So isn't it interesting how the enemy has twisted things? Oh, Christians shouldn't bother with politics. That's, that's, that's worldly things. What a terrible and tragic way to think. And that's part of why we see the nation being plunged into to the things that it is right now. All right, so let me deal with another issue along these same lines. What about the separation of church and state then? Aren't there laws in place that prevent us from using faith to influence public policy? Well, actually, no. And as a matter of fact, quite the opposite is true. You're looking at a picture there on the screen of our third president, Thomas Jefferson. And shortly after he was inaugurated, he got a letter by a religious group by the name of the Danbury Baptists. And the reason that they were writing to him was to ask if he planned on maintaining the, the government's off-hands approach, if you will, to uh, religious freedom and religious expression. They wanted to make sure that they were able to maintain their freedom of speech and freedom of religious expression. And they were concerned that maybe Thomas Jefferson didn't share those views. So they wrote to him a letter along those lines. And here's how he responded. Now, before I, I give you this letter, I want you to understand that the term separation of church and state is not in our Constitution anywhere. 
I think some of you maybe didn't know that. Maybe some of you younger ones who have always heard that concept of separation of church and state, that the church shouldn't get involved in politics. That term, separation of church and state, is not in our Constitution anywhere. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in any of our bills. It appears nowhere in the documents of our our government. Where did it appear? It appeared in this letter where Thomas Jefferson responded back to the Danbury Baptists and looked at the context in which he used it. Here we go. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus, here we go, building a wall of separation between church and state. Now, what's that mean? That wall that he is speaking of is regarding the prevention of government on having any influence whatsoever on the exercise of religion. That's what he was talking about. It has nothing to do with religion having an influence on government. That's not what that meant. So some of these modern folks in our politics who want to do away with religion, they have lifted that phrase out of context, which appears nowhere in the documents of our government. It was a letter. They lifted that phrase out of of Thomas Jefferson's letter and used it and turned it around and used it out out of context to mean that the church should not be involved in anything political. Quite the opposite is true. That's not what Thomas Jefferson meant. That's not what he wrote. And uh, quite the opposite is true. The government should not be infringing upon the freedoms of religion and freedom of expression along those lines or freedom of speech. But... Religion can and should influence public policy. Are you awake this morning? Okay. Now, I want to go a step further with this. Now, last week, I reintroduced you to um, President Lyndon B. Johnson, who was a very evil man. We talked about racism last week, and he was a terrible racist. And so we talked about him last week where his legislation is concerned that really hurt black people in this country. But now we're going to bring him up for a different reason. Um, In 1954, there was something called the Johnson Amendment, which he helped to pioneer, which prohibits all 5013C organizations, including houses of worship, from endorsing political candidates. See, prior to 1954, pastors were very involved in speaking about politics from the pulpit. They would call out names. They would name names of people who were perpetrating evil in our our government and our culture. They would name names, and pastors would have a very great influence on the outcome of elections. And certain political figures didn't like that. So Linda B. Johnson, who, again, as I mentioned last week, took over for Kennedy after he was assassinated. So he he was a Democrat. Um, He didn't like what a lot of these pastors were saying, so he wanted to put a gag order on all that. So that's what this was. So again, prior to 1954, there was a lot of pastors regularly speaking out on on political and social issues and naming names when it came to certain political figures in our government. So in 1954, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson and Congress surreptitiously or secretly passed legislation to stop non-for-profit organizations from getting involved in the political process. So in other words, if you were 5013C tax exempt and you wanted to keep that tax exemption, they said you can't speak about politics from the pulpit any longer if you want to keep that tax exemption. So it put a gag order on pastors, which is totally unconstitutional under the First Amendment, which is the freedom of speech. It's completely unconstitutional. Now, the idea, ladies and gentlemen, That churches should not discuss politics is a cultural lie that was foisted upon us by our government, Lyndon B. Johnson and the Congress in 1954, specifically designed to put a gag order on pastors. However, fast forward to the Trump administration, 
Yeah. And he reversed that a couple of years back. Did you know that? That Johnson Amendment stood for 60 plus years and President Trump reversed it. Look what President Trump said. For too long, the federal government has used the power of the state as a weapon against people of faith, bullying and even punishing Americans for following their religious beliefs. We're now in a position, he's speaking about the repealing of it, he signed into law, the Johnson Amendment no longer exists. He signed that into law. So he's referring there to that. We're now in a position to say what you want to say. No one should be censoring sermons or targeting pastors. Hallelujah. Praise God. So guess what? I'm going to say what I want to say. And I'm going to name names. I'm not going to be obscure. I'm going to be very specific about what the two party platforms stand for. And uh, you know what? And I was doing this, by the way, if you've been following my sermons for a few years, I was doing this long before Trump repealed the Johnson Amendment because it's my constitutional right to do so. Okay? And we need to talk about this stuff, folks. Now, Hosea 4, 6, you know this scripture. It says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And that applies in so many different ways, but especially, I think, when it comes to politics and how it's applied here. So from time to time, I talk to people who lean hard toward one party or another, but have no idea what the party stands for that they've been voting for for years. They have no idea. They just vote for the party that their mom and dad, their parents, their family line voted for, but they have no idea what their party stands for. So I'm going to give you an idea this morning. First of all, many Christians today vote according to family history or party loyalty. And I've told people before, look, you know, you may be a a Democrat that was raised up in the 1930s. You know, the, the Democratic Party today looks nothing like it looked in the 1930s. Nothing. So your party loyalty may be Democrat, but you better be following what the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, too, stands for. Because if you haven't been keeping up with that, you could be completely blindsided about what you're really voting for. Many Christians these days vote according to family history or party loyalty and media hype and indoctrination. And that indoctrination comes from many different places, not just the media. Universities, public schools are very involved in this indoctrination, very involved. So uh, you have to watch out for that. And I I like what Creflo Dollar said in response to Kenneth Copeland, encouraging him to go read the party platform that he'd been voting for. Of course, most black people have been conditioned since the 1950s and the Johnson Amendment to vote Democrat, because that Johnson Amendment made it look like they were the party of, uh, you know, of the blacks, of liberation, etc. It was, well, go listen to my teaching last week. That's completely not true. Um, so based upon that history since 1954, a lot of blacks have been conditioned to vote strictly Democrat. Well, Kenneth Copeland challenged Creflo Dollar one time to go read the party platform of the Democrats, and he came back and said to Kenneth Copeland, I have been lied to. He'd been voting for things for years that don't fit his convictions, his religious and biblical convictions. And he was angry. I've been lied to. I've been voting for this for years, and this completely violates my conscience and my biblical convictions. So I want to encourage you this morning, know your Bible first and foremost. Know your Bible, know the political platforms that you're voting for, and then vote accordingly. Vote accordingly. Vote according to what the Bible says on these social issues. And don't get your news and your worldview from the mainstream media, for Pete's sake. Now, I don't have time to go off on this, but when President Trump called the media fake news, he wasn't joking. They have been bought out. They've been bought out by China. They've been bought out by George Soros. The trail of dirty money where the media is concerned is very, very long. I wish I had time to get into it. I I don't. But um, that's another discussion for a different day. But I want you to understand that the media is feeding you something, feeding you a worldview 
that they want you to buy into, and it's a worldview they're feeding you. That's no longer news, it's propaganda. Now, all that said, we're going to compare side by side the two political parties and what they stand for. And before I jump into this, I want you to understand right from the outset, as I give you the positions of the two political platforms, that one of the things that President Trump did when he came into office, it's like he turned on a bright light in a dark room and all the cockroaches were exposed. That's what happened. On both sides, by the way. On both sides. Now, there's, there's more corruption than I can even imagine on the left, but it's also begun to creep into the right. There's people, there's people on the right now that the reason they didn't like Trump because they were getting exposed themselves. Okay? So there's what they call rhinos, R-I-N-O, Republican in name only. They've slipped in to try to influence things on that side as well. And Trump exposed all that. So as I get into this, I want you to understand that there is corruption on both sides. I acknowledge that. But historically, this is what the two parties have stood for. So here we go. Uh, Democrats are pro-abortion. They make no bones about it. They want abortion up until even the time of birth, even after birth sometimes. Uh, whereas Republicans are pro-life. And um, you know, we talked about that in an earlier teaching. Democrats are very strongly in favor of homosexual marriage, where Republicans still believe and endorse traditional marriage. Uh, Democrats are antagonistic now toward religious liberty, whereas Republicans defend the First Amendment of religious freedom. Now, I'm just reading you the party platforms, folks. You can go on the party. I'm not giving you opinion right now. Go on the party platforms. You can look it right up online and read about what they stand for. This, I took this right off, right off line. So this is common knowledge. Okay, so they're antagonistic toward religious liberty. And by the way, the next two, religious liberty and selective censorship, they don't come right out and say that. But that's certainly the way that they've been doing things. Okay, so uh, the Democrats, once again, antagonistic toward religious liberty, whereas the Republicans defend the First Amendment of religious freedom. Democrats are grossly and widespread involved in selective censorship now. Whereas the Republicans defend the First Amendment, which is the freedom of speech. And this next one I'm going to talk here a little bit. Uh, I'm going to expand upon this next one for just a few minutes here. Um, welfare benefits. So Democrats are for ever expanding welfare benefits for even people that can work but don't. Okay. Whereas Republicans are for welfare benefits only for those who cannot help themselves. And they support incentive programs to motivate personal change and development for those who can help themselves. Why is this such a big issue and why should we be talking about that? Well, because the Bible endorses welfare programs for people who cannot help themselves. So what's the Bible say about this? In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 10... It says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to, to the teaching you received from us. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's what the Bible says. We shouldn't be giving welfare benefits to people who can work but won't, who are simply manipulating the system. That's completely ungodly. I introduced you to a person last week when we talked about racism by the name of Thomas Sowell. He's a black conservative commentator and, and a professor, uh, a very, very bright man. And I'm going to quote him again today on this particular point. And he says this, Helping those who have been struck by unforeseeable misfortune is fundamentally different than making dependency a way of life. Boy, amen to that. 
That is absolutely true. And as a matter of fact, uh, former Nevada State Assembly member Sharon Engel had this to say about this subject. What's happening in this country is a violation of the first commandment. We have become a country entrenched in idolatry, and that idolatry is the dependency upon our government. We're supposed to depend upon God for our protection and our provision and for our daily bread, not our government. Amen. Now, speaking of rhinos, <laughs> Mitt Romney, who uh, I used to like until Trump came along and then Trump uh, exposed what he really is. But uh, I do really like what he said on this topic. So listen closely. You, let's set aside the source for just a moment and let's consider the, the truth of this statement. Dependency is death to initiative, to risk-taking, and opportunity. It's time to stop the spread of government dependency and fight it like the poison that it is. Government dependency is a poison, and he's absolutely right about that. Now, by the way, this also should be a word to the wise for the parents. Folks and parents, let's not make our kids dependent upon us as they grow up. We should be teaching our kids to stand on their own two feet, to make a way for themselves in the world. Am I right? And when parents don't do that, they cripple their children and demasculate their boys in particular. Children should be taught the values of hard work and not relying on their parents for handouts or the government for handouts or anyone else for handouts for that matter. See, it's the struggle to make something of oneself that develops character. It's the struggle to make something of oneself that develops character. And when there's no struggle, well, there's very little character development. I mean, many of you right now can look back upon the struggle that you had to make something of yourself. And you look back and you are thankful for that because it helped you to develop character. All right, let's continue on with these two party platforms. The Democrats are in favor of heavier taxation of the rich, like luxury taxes and higher percentages of taxes for the rich, whereas Republicans are for equal taxes for everyone. Why is that a big deal? Why shouldn't we be taxing the rich heavier and maybe spread the wealth out a little bit? I'll tell you why. I'm going to give you an example from what happened in Congress in the 1990s when they uh, passed legislation to put heavy taxes upon very expensive luxury items like expensive jewelry, high-end cars, yachts, things of that nature. And when they passed that legislation, there were five yacht manufacturers that went out of business. Five. Thousands and thousands of people lost their jobs. And as a result, the economy really suffered. Why? Because the rich weren't buying luxury items anymore. And when the rich don't buy luxury items, people below them lose their jobs who are making the luxury items. That's called trickle-down economics. When the rich do well, the people below them do well because it creates jobs. When the people up above, the, when the rich don't do well, the people below tend to do even worse because they lose jobs. That's called trickle-down economics. So the idea of taxing the rich heavier and taxing luxury items is a horrible idea because it hurts you and me. It hurts the middle class. It hurts the lower class. The left is pushing this like, oh yeah, let's tax the rich heavier and distribute the wealth evenly. That's not what happens. You know what happens? The wealthy stop buying those luxury items, or worse yet, they move their businesses out of the country. And they outsource them and give those jobs to Mexico or whoever else, and Americans lose jobs by the thousands. That's called trickle-down economics. But that whole idea of, oh, let's redistribute the wealth through heavier taxation of the rich, oh, that sounds so wonderful. The rich can handle it because they're rich. But that's not what happens. So you can tell I'm animated about that. Yes. Trickle-down economics. Horrible, horrible idea to tax the rich heavier because they're rich, thinking that's going to help the middle class. It doesn't. It never does. All right, let's go on. 
Uh, Democrats are for government-run health care, a socialist system of health care like Obamacare, as an example. Whereas Republicans believe that health care decisions should be made by private citizens, you and me, and our doctors, not dictated by the government. All right. Let's continue on. Democrats believe, okay, now you've got to really get this one. This, this is socialism at, at its worst. Democrats believe of the allowance of the seizure of private property by the government. So they now support something that was passed by our Supreme Court. It was the Quito versus New London Supreme Court decision, which allowed for local governments to seize your home and your land and your property, if they want it, to the transfer of private developers. In other words, if a private developer wanted to come in and create a whole new neighborhood, but your land and your, your house was in the way, or if a developer wanted to come in and build a, a skyscraper and a new business, and your land and, and your house was in the way, they could literally seize it from you and make you move someplace else so that developer could have that land. That was the Quito versus New London Supreme Court decision, which Democrats support. Republicans defend the Fifth Amendment, however. The Fifth Amendment is the protection of private property against government seizure. Are you picking up on a trend? Yes. Likewise, Democrats believe in, in which, unless you're just really intending to destroy the country, there's no rhyme or reason why Democrats would support this next one. Reliance on foreign countries for energy and opposing domestic energy sources like oil. Now, did you notice that when Trump was in office and he began to rebuild that Alaskan pipeline, do you, do you know what happened to gas prices? They did, but why? Because we weren't buying foreign oil anymore. And so the, the gas prices went down because we were able to provide our own energy sources. Do you know what's happened to gas prices recently as Biden stopped the Alaskan pipeline? It's doubled. It's, it's, in the short time Biden has been in office, gas prices have doubled in that short period of time because we're relying on countries who hate us to buy our oil from. Again, what could possess somebody to think so stupidly unless you're specifically and strategically trying to get the country to a place where the economy is destroyed so that the socialists and the communists can come in and take over? Hello, something to think about. All right, I'm not done. Democrats believe in no enforcement of immigration laws whatsoever now. Whatsoever. Whereas Republicans believe and support the enforcement of legal immigration. If they get here in a, illegally through a legal process and they become tax-paying, contributing members of our nation, we're for that. I, we don't care where you're from. Mexico, Guatemala, no one cares. As long as you go through the legal process and become a tax-paying citizen, a hard-working, contributing citizen, we're all for that. What we're not for is people coming through the borders illegally, getting all the benefits that we people who are paying taxes to get, but they don't pay taxes, but they get all the benefits anyway. And it hurts the economy. The Democrats have gone so far as to call Trump a racist because he is for strong immigration policies. That's ridiculous. Trump has always been for legal immigration. That's how this country got started. We're all a kind of a, a mixing bowl, if you will, of different nations of people, different cultures who have come into America as, as immigrants, but came in legally, became hard workers, taxpayers, etc. Uh, this illegal immigration will destroy a nation eventually. Illegal immigration will destroy a nation eventually because it overwhelms the economy to give all these tax breaks to people who aren't paying taxes. And, by the way, give them rights to vote, and they're not even a citizen. Why would you give an illegal alien the right to vote when they're not even a citizen? Because the people who got them to become to come across the border in the first place, i.e. Democrats, they believe they're going to vote Democrats so they'll stay in power. That's the strategy behind it. Okay, I'm just giving you the facts today.
Let's go on here. Democrats believe in a push toward requiring all children to be enrolled in state institutions like traditional schools, requiring it. Whereas Republicans support consumer choice in education, like private education, homeschooling, we're for all those things. All right? A very, very important distinction there. What's the Bible say about this? Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I want to remind you, fathers, that Proverbs was written by a father to his son, instructing his son, here's how you raise a family. That proverb right there was certainly appropriate for wives and mothers. You should be training your children too, wives and mothers. But fathers, that right there was specifically given to you. We should be educating our children. We should be the primary trainers and educators of our children, not pushing them off on a teacher at school. Oh, you educate my children at school, and then pushing them off on a Sunday school teacher. Oh, you educate my children spiritually, and I'll sit back here and watch the Home Shopping Network and let everybody else have an influence on my kids. And that's why, in part, the country is in the shape that it's in, because Socialist and humanist teachers are teaching your kids and influencing them at public school and universities, and you're pushing your, your spiritual education off on a Sunday school teacher for an hour one week and doing nothing at home in between Sundays. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You be educating your kids. So we're very for home education. Donna and I have been homeschoolers like the Denny's we talked about this morning. We've been homeschoolers from day one. None of our kids have been to public school. And if you have to send your kids to public school because of financial reasons or whatever else, well, okay, just bathe them in prayer and deprogram them of the humanism they just got exposed to for eight hours or 40 hours in the course of a week. You got to make efforts to deprogram them when they come home. Amen. Or I'm telling you, the propensity of you losing them to the world is very high. Because when they get 40 hours of indoctrination throughout the week and maybe three or four hours max of teaching and support from parents, there's no contest. There's no contest. Okay, got really quiet in here on that one. Um, all right. <laughs> Democrats are not supportive of home education, but Republicans want to provide tax breaks and vouchers for home educators. Hallelujah. Folks, listen, that's just, I just barely scratched the surface on what the two party platforms stand for. And we need to be praying for both of them because, once again, I believe that a lot of that corruption that I talked about earlier has crept into the Republican Party as well. And that's what Trump exposed so much of. So we need to be praying for the Republican Party as well, but certainly the Democrats, because they have been steeped since the 1930s in socialism. And I'm going to prove that to you right now. You may think that's a, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, FDR, I mean, come on, really? Well, I'm going to prove it to you right now. Look at the screen. You're looking at a picture of Upton St. Clair. And Upton St. Clair was a, a noted American author who twice ran for Congress on the socialist ticket and also ran for governor of California in 1934 under the Democratic Party ticket. And here, listen to what he says. Pay very close attention. The American people, this was the 1930s, <clears throat> the American people will accept socialism, but they won't take the label. I certainly proved it in the case of EPIC, which stands for uh, End Poverty in California. I certainly proved it in the case of EPIC, running on the socialist ticket, I got 60,000 votes. And running on the slogan to End Poverty in California, I got 879,000 votes. I think we simply had to recognize the fact that our enemies, talking about conservatives, people that uphold American and godly values, he's calling those people his enemies. I think we simply have to recognize the fact that our enemies have succeeded in spreading the big lie. There is no use attacking it by a front attack. It is much better to outflank them. So he was a socialist who ran on the socialist ticket and then converted over to the Democratic Party ticket uh, because it seemed to be more advantageous to the cause. Now, I'm going to take this a step further. You're looking at a picture of Norman Thomas there. And Norman Thomas uh, ran for the U.S. Socialist Party presidential candidate in 1940, 1944, and 1948. 
So this was the 1940s, folks, that Norman Thomas uh, ran as a presidential candidate under the U.S. Socialist Party. Why do we even have a Socialist Party, for goodness sake? And here's what he says. Listen, the American people will never knowingly adopt socialism, but under the name of liberalism, they will adopt every fragment of the socialist program until one day America will be a socialist nation without knowing how it happened. Let me read to you what he also said after the last time he ran for president and then decided to not run anymore. Look at his reasoning. I no longer need to run as a presidential candidate for the Socialist Party. The Democratic Party has adopted our platform. That was in the 1940s, folks. Things have only gotten worse since then. As a matter of fact, his prediction is actually somewhat wrong because he says the American people will never knowingly adopt socialism. That's no longer true. We've got Bernie Sanders who's openly socialist and the other ones are, are socialist. They're just not as open about it. Now, for those of you young people that don't really know what socialism is, I don't have time to define that this morning, but, but it is the gateway to all-out communism. That's what it is. You've heard it said that Marijuana is the gateway to harder drugs like heroin. And cigarettes is the gateway to you know, the marijuana, and so goes the progression. Well, socialism is the gateway to all-out communism and all-out Marxism. So, again, I can't get into a protracted discussion about what socialism is, but it's evil. It's, it's totally evil. All right? And I want you to understand, folks, that you and I still have... We have a role to play in this conflict, this, this social conflict. We're not fighting just a war against Democrats, Republicans, Socialists, Marxists. We're fighting a spiritual war. We're fighting a spiritual war. And Edmund Burke once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So what can we do? Well, I'm coming down home stretch here. I'm almost done. I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions here about what we can do because we seem right now very powerless right now, but we have a God who's not powerless. You know, I've already talked about one thing that we can do, and that's at least know the Bible and know what it says on these social issues and then vote accordingly. And if God so leads, folks, maybe even consider running for office of some sort. Really? Some of you right here could probably do that. But now in this situation that we find ourselves in with this last presidential election, and I use that term election very loosely, um, if this doesn't get turned around somehow, we will never have a fair election in this country ever again. It's over, folks, if it doesn't get fixed. But, but, when our backs are against the wall... And there's no way out. That's when God does some of his best work. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I mentioned Esther already and the people, uh, the Jews that were living in uh, Palestine at that time, their backs were up against the wall. They were facing annihilation. And God came through for them in a very dramatic fashion, didn't he? So here's what we can do in times like this. And yes, by the way, I'll insert this before I go to these little few instructions and then we're going to pray. But I do believe this is going to get turned around. I, I believe that. I'm still standing with the prophets. You know, the timing may not be like we think that it's going to be, but God hardly ever is like that. God hardly ever is on your timeline and mine. I'm still standing with the prophets. I'm still standing on what they're saying. That God has got this. I listened to a prophetess the other day who said that President Trump is still God's choice. That has not changed. She went on to say that Biden is not God's choice and he will be removed. I'm still standing on that. Their circumstances may not look that way right now. But since when have circumstances ever moved God? 
The Bible says that the nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. We may think, oh, this looks too big. How could God ever turn this around? But the nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. I'm still standing on that. I will stand on that until the day it happens. I'm not wavering off of that. So at times like this, you know, it really seems like, wow, what can I possibly do? Well, I'm going to give us uh, just a few simple instructions here, and then we're going to pray. So again, we go back to our familiar passage, Second Chronicles 7:14, which says, "If my people, who are called by my name, that's you and me, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face." That's like an energetic seeking after God is what that means. Not a little passive approach to God, but fervently seeking him. That's what that's referring to. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Oh my goodness. There was evil in the camp back then. And there's evil in God's church today in so many different areas. And we need to heed that as well. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So I have broken down on the screen there the things that we can do from that passage. And number one is repent and live right. We need to simply repent. Let the Holy Spirit address what's in your life that you need to repent from Repent, make it right, and then turn around and live right. That's number one. Okay? That's number one. Number two, humble ourselves. Of course, that goes hand in hand with the first one. You have to be able to humble yourself to recognize the things that you need to repent from. You need to humble yourself to be able to go to God and repent for these things. And then live right. And then thirdly, pray continually. Seek God's face Fervently, Folks, we are in a war right now. Our, the, 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 listen, the future of the church and our nation and maybe our families, the way that we know it, hangs in the balance right now. And we're off enjoying our, you know, our Sundays off doing this and doing that. We're, we're, we're you know, enjoying our Netflix or whatever else and vegging out on the couch and not being fervently praying. This is a, this is a time to shut off your TVs. And begin praying. Now, I'm not against a little TV as long as it's, it's wholesome. But if that's all you're doing and you're like watching three or four hours of TV a day and you're praying five minutes a day, that's way out of balance. And that's part of why we're in the condition that we are right now. Seek God's face fervently, consistently. And it's that, it's that sort of thing right there that's going to turn this nation around. So what I'd like to do right now, we're going to follow this up with some action right now. We're going to pray as a church right now. I've asked Rob Phelps to come up and lead us in that prayer. And we're not going to pray. And I told Rob, I said, Rob, we're, we're going to end this with prayer. I don't want it to be a, a little mamby-pamby, God, thanks for this service and help us to have a good day. Amen. Kind of closing of the service. No, we're going to bombard the gates of heaven right now with a little bit of extended prayer here of energetic prayer. Okay. So just get ready for that. So stand up with me, if you will. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.